The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 19, The Irish Rebellion. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Firstly, apologies for the delay in today's episode. It's been difficult to work over the last few weeks for reasons I won't bother you with, but thank you for your patience. Hopefully, the wait will be worth it. As we've already heard, the Ulster Rising in October 1641 was intended to be the partner of another plot, to seize Dublin Castle and capture the government of Ireland in a fait accompli. On the evening of Friday, the 22nd of October, Sir Phelim O'Neill, one of the most influential O'Neills still in Ireland, captured Dungannon in Tyrone, and then, two hours later, seized the fort of Charlemont in Armagh. By the end of the next day, his forces were also in control of Newry, Tandragree, Portadown, and Moneymore. If you find these towns on a map, those positions stretch from the shores of Loch Nee to within a few miles of the coast. Even before the rising spread from these positions, Sir Phelim controlled the route between Dublin and the largest plantations of Ulster. He had effectively cut off the largest concentrations of Protestants from the rescue of any stragglers not captured in the coup d'etat, which was then due to have taken place in the capital. But, as we covered last time, the coup d'etat had not taken place, and instead, the conspirators had been the ones imprisoned. Sir Phelim only heard that the coup had failed by Tuesday, by which point he'd already made the declaration that the Irish were loyal to the king and only wished to defend themselves and their liberty. He followed this declaration with further military successes, despite the failure of his partners in Dublin. Armagh itself was captured on the 28th, and three days later Dundalk fell to the rebels. The following day, Lurgan was taken, while neighbouring Dromore was burned. Victories in the east were hampered by the successful defence of Lisbon, though one contemporary believed that had Sir Phelim simply bypassed the town, he could have easily taken both Belfast and Carrickfergus. Now, these are a lot of place names that I'm doing my best to pronounce correctly, though I'm sorry for those that I mess up. 
So, if you're not familiar with the geography of Ireland, we'll quickly run through the counties and where they are in relation to one another. These are the modern counties and districts, and so there's been plenty of changes over the centuries, but they'll still give you a rough idea of where everyone is. I'll also stick to the English names for now. Gaelic is a beautiful language that I'd like to learn, and using the Gaelic place names would be good practice. But it's safe to say that the English names are more widely known. I mean, after all, you're listening to a podcast about why that's the case. But to avoid extra confusion and my terrible pronunciation, I'll mostly keep to the English, with a few smatterings of Gaelic where possible. So firstly, the island of Ireland is divided into four provinces. Ulster in the north, Linster in the east, Munster in the south, and Connacht in the west. Within these four provinces are 32 counties. Starting on the northeast coast in the province of Ulster are County Antrim and County Down. West of these two counties, and on the west and south coast of Loch Nee, are the counties of Londonderry, or Derry, Tyrone, and Armair. These counties should be familiar, as a lot of events have already taken place here. The most western county of Ulster, covering the northwestern corner of Ireland, is County Donegal. South of Tyrone and Armair are the counties of Monaghan and Fermanagh, and south of them, and the southernmost county in the province, is Kevin. So, to repeat, in Ulster we have Antrim, Down, Derry, Tyrone, Ermere, Donegal, Monaghan, Fermanagh, and Kevin. In the province of Linster, heading south down the coast, we have Lou, Meath, Dublin, Wicklow, and Wexford. Heading west of Meath, you'll find Westmeath. On the western border of Westmeath, there is Longford, and south of Westmeath is Offaly. Sound of Offaly is Leash, and bordering Leash, going from the northeast to the south, are the counties of Kildare, Carlow, and Kilkenny, which sit between Leash and Dublin, Wicklow, and Wexford. So in Linster, we have Lou, Meath, Dublin, Wicklow, Wexford, Westmeath, Longford, Offaly, Leash, Kildare, Carlow, and Kilkenny. I know this is a lot of names already to keep in your head, but since Ulster and Linster hold the largest number of counties, we are more than halfway through. In the southernmost province of Munster, starting at the border with Linster, we have the neighbouring counties of Tipperary and Waterford, with Waterford sitting on the coast. West of these two counties, going southwards, we have County Clare, Limerick, and Cork, and on the southwestern corner of the island is County Kerry. Tipperary, Waterford, Clare, Limerick, Cork, and Kerry. Last but not least is the province of Connacht, the western province. Going north from the south this time, and bordering the counties of Clare, Tipperary, and Offaly, is Galway. North of Galway are the counties of Mayo, on the coast, and Roscommon, which borders Offaly, Westmeath, Longford, and the last two counties of the province, Leitrim, which borders Longford, Kevin, Fermanagh, and Donegal, and County Sligo, on the coast. So again, Connacht has the counties of Galway, Mayo, Roscommon, Leitrim, and Sligo. That is a whistle-stop tour of Ireland, and don't worry, there won't be a test. But hopefully, for those whose geographic knowledge of the island isn't great, you'll be able to have a rough idea of where places are, and I'll do my best to provide context as we go anyway. Again, if you have a moment free, please do Google a map of the counties of Ireland, it will help immensely. Anyway, on with the narrative. Sir Phelim was not the only leader of the Ulster Rising. 
As agreed, other local leaders joined the rebellion in the following days. The McMahons of County Monaghan captured all the major towns in the county within the first day of the Rising. In Cavan, Philip O'Reilly sent his nephew, who was the sheriff of Cavan, to many of the plantations in the county. News of the Rising elsewhere had already arrived, and Sheriff O'Reilly politely asked the English and Scottish colonists for weapons so that his forces could hold off the rebels. Amazingly, this ruse worked, and most of the settlers willingly disarmed themselves and gave their weapons to Sheriff O'Reilly. The O'Reillys then turned around and mustered 3,000 men, arming many of them with the weapons taken from the settlers, and seized the English towns in Cavan. The ruse to disarm the colonists had worked wonders, and by the 29th of October, most of the county was under Philip O'Reilly's control, and there had been very little bloodshed. That would come later, as we'll see. Rory Maguire, brother of the Connor Maguire who'd been arrested in Dublin, rose in the west and captured a number of plantations surrounding Loch Urn, in Fermanagh, within days of the Rising. However, much like Sir Phelan's experience in the east of Ulster, Maguire struggled to continue his successes once the advantage of surprise had been lost. Ballyshannon in Donegal and Inniskillen in Fermanagh held out, even as many of their neighbouring towns were captured. Inniskillen was warned in time for the governor, Sir William Cole, to prepare a defence. Cole had been warned by Maguire's own cousin, Brian Maguire, who had refused to join the conspiracy and, when threatened by the conspirators, sent a warning to the governor the day before the rising. Again, to see these events through a purely black-and-white, Catholic versus Protestant, Irish versus English lens misses a lot of the complexity of the rebellion, especially in its early stages. Speaking of complexities, remember the Irish army? Remember how, despite the efforts of Charles, the bulk of the soldiers were still in Ireland? Well, now a significant portion of the disbanded army joined with the rebels, and this gave Sir Phelim and the other Ulster leaders a strong advantage in the early days of the Rising. Their training and their raw numbers meant that in the storming of towns like Lisburn, the rebels were able to muster up to 10,000 men. It also, by virtue of the army having been largely disbanded and disarmed, deprived the authorities in Dublin of an effective response to the Rising. Had the army been paid and remained under arms and under the command of the government, it's hard to say how successful the Rising would have been. It would have certainly shortened the time it took for the authorities to react, and it would likely have changed the outcome. In November, the rebels entered County Lou in the province of Leinster, and besieged the town of Drogheda, the bridge at the ford. And it's an apt name, as the town straddles the River Boyne. Colonel McMahon led his forces out of County Monaghan, and assembled them outside the town. He called a meeting of the old English gentry and nobility of County Lou, and convinced them to join the rebellion. Unfortunately for the rebels, they had no artillery, and the governor had recently repaired the walls through the efforts of the townsfolk, and the garrison had recently been reinforced. Storming the town was not an option, and so they'd have to starve it out. But, as I just mentioned, Drahada sits on both banks of the River Boyne, and so to complete the encirclement, the rebels would have to sit on both sides of the river. The O'Reilly force moved from Cavan into Lou, and they marched for the southern bank of the town, aiming to complete the encirclement of Drahada and starve out the defenders. As O'Reilly was setting up the encirclement, news came to him 
of a relief force sent from Dublin. 600 infantry, with half a troop of cavalry, were en route to Drogheda, a not insignificant force. Though still outnumbered by the rebels, with good discipline and competent command, the army could prevail. Unfortunately for those men, they did not have good discipline or competent commanders. Most of the officers were inexperienced, and many of the men had only recently been refugees from the Rising, with little training and motivated mostly by a desire for revenge. On the morning of the 29th of November, the government force reached Julianstown, about four miles from Jahada. Out of the thick morning mist charged a force of O'Reilly's, who were led by experienced veterans who had served in France. The government force was led by inexperienced officers, who had not only failed to heed the warnings of a possible ambush, but had failed to meet up with an allied force sent out from Drogheda to aid in the final stretch of the march. When the English cavalry charged the attackers, they didn't use their pistols. And the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, was when an English officer panicked in the face of the Irish charge, and instead of ordering his men to stand their ground and fire, ordered a countermarch. The government cavalry was forced to retreat, while the infantry, mostly drawn from refugees from the plantations, were wiped out. The ambush was a complete success, and though it was limited in terms of raw numbers of enemies killed and captured, the morale value was incredible. The victory played a key role in bringing the old English of the Pale into the rebellion, and the defenders of Drahada could only look on in horror as the encirclement of their town was completed. The town would remain under siege for the rest of the year, and well into 1642. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. 
And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. As mentioned, in an attempt to drive a wedge between the English and Scottish settlers, the rebels initially limited their anger to the English, sparing their Scottish neighbours. Advising the conspirators from abroad, Owen Roe O'Neill agreed with this plan, and once the uprising began, the rebel leaders did what they could to convince the Scots that they were not their enemy. Sir Phelan wrote to one Scottish plantation leader, insisting that he had, quote, nothing against your nation, end quote, and asked that he, quote, give notice to your countrymen of our goodwill, end quote. At times, this divide-and-conquer strategy worked exceptionally well, such as in Fermanagh, where some Scots, men of some status in the county, joined the Irish against the English. In Cavan, an English minister recalled how the English fled to their Scottish neighbours for protection, knowing that the rebels were sparing the Scots. Instead, the Scots simply handed the English over to the rebels and to their dire fate. The War of Words was not limited to expressing friendship to the Scots, and indeed the rebels spread a vast amount of misinformation. In the chaos of these early weeks, rumours spread like wildfire that the Scots, far from merely being spared the violence, were actually in alliance with the Irish against the English. That the Covenant of Scots, up to and including Argyll, had made another covenant with the Irish to wipe out the English and to share their land between them. Now that would be one hell of a partnership, the anti-Catholic Covenanters signing up with the largely Catholic Irish. Now, there was nothing to these rumours, but the question is, how many of these rumours were instigated by the rebel leadership, and how many came about organically from a rumour mill supercharged by trauma and chaos? It's impossible to know but the claims are littered throughout the accounts. But of course, the Scots were allies only of convenience, and as the weeks went on, and especially as the leadership lost control of the situation, the friendship between the rebel Irish and the Scots began to break down. By mid-November, several massacres of Scottish civilians had already taken place, and in a town of Monaghan, all the Scots had been imprisoned. The leaders of the rebellion didn't limit their use of misinformation to only dividing the English and Scots. From the earliest days of the uprising, Sir Phelan, Maguire and others claimed the authority of the king for their actions. And after meeting in the first days of November, the rebels issued a formal declaration on the 4th. The king, they said, had granted them a commission, under the Great Seal of Scotland, which stated that the English Parliament had effectively exiled Charles to his northern kingdom and stolen his authority. As it appeared that the same would happen in Ireland, Charles had ordered them to seize all the fortresses and all the property of the English Protestants, with the noted exception of, quote, the places, persons and estates of our loyal and loving subjects, the Scots, end quote. See, this wasn't a rebellion against the king, this was a rebellion for the king. Now, it almost goes without saying that this royal commission was no such thing. It was a fake, it was a lie, it was an incredibly bold lie that buoyed the morale of the Irish and bolstered their cause while further demoralising and dividing the British settlers. 
It neatly packaged the elite desire for greater participation in the government with the general anti-plantation feeling. But aside from the effect the declaration had in Ireland, it will be explosive in the other two kingdoms. But that's for a later time. By the end of the year, the unrest had spread as far away as southwest Munster. As 1641 gave way to 1642, few parts of Ireland had been unaffected by the violence. As we've mentioned and hinted at many times already, the 1641 rebellion became infamous, then and now, for the level of violence meted out against civilians. While civilians were attacked, expelled from their homes, or outright killed in the early days of the Ulster Rising, leaders like Sir Phelim O'Neill did attempt to limit the violence in both its severity and who it targeted. We've just discussed the efforts made to keep the Scots out of it. But, in a way, it's too simple to view the 1641 rebellion as such, because it wasn't just one rebellion. It rapidly became two. The first was instigated by the gentry leadership, built on conspiracy and led by political actors. The second was a popular rebellion, sparked by the first. The gentry could maintain some control over this second rebellion, but it was an animal all of its own, with its own momentum. By the end of November, the popular nature of the uprising was well understood in Dublin. An official report states that, quote, the meaner sort of people of the natives rise up unanimously, men, women, and children, and joining together in multitudes in imitation of the rebels, fall on their near neighbours that are English or Protestants, and rob and spoil them, end quote. The rebel leadership was aware of the violence early on, with Sir Phelan mentioning reparations on the 24th of October, his brother condemning a, quote, massacre, and the O'Reillys complaining of the, quote, barbarity and uncivility of the commonality, in their remonstrance early in November. It is, however, important not to fall into the trap of believing the gentry leadership's excuses in their entirety. Certainly, the popular rebellion enacted much of the violence, but it's safe to say that the landless sort were an easy scapegoat to pin the worst excesses of the rebellion on. It would be, after all, much easier to come to a political settlement if you could blame most of the violence on someone else. So now, we have to discuss that violence. And as we will see, it can be very difficult to separate fact from fiction, or perhaps the truth from legend. We have the accounts of what actually happened on the ground, as best as we can tell, and then we have the enormous amount of embellishment, exaggeration, and outright lies, which spread like wildfire throughout Ireland, the other two Stuart kingdoms, and the rest of Europe. For the rest of today's episode, we'll cover the early massacres, before next time we see how these events were depicted by others, and the reaction that the Irish Rebellion had in the other two kingdoms. Because despite how extreme these events became in the retelling, there were massacres of civilians and prisoners. Initially, the violence against settlers was mostly limited to robbery, expulsion and arson, with fewer outright killings. That's not to understate the lethal consequences of these actions, though. Being driven from your home, with few supplies in the middle of winter, was not a pleasant fate. But initially, while the chance for a swift capitulation of the government still held, the violence was limited. But as the weeks went on, the Dublin government still stood, and the rebellion spread, and the violence escalated. 
Over the winter of 1641 and into 1642, imprisoned settlers and captured troops were routinely killed by their guards. One such prison slaughter occurred in Sligo, while several convoys of prisoners being transferred from one place to another were massacred in County Mayo and County Armer, among others. At Portadown Bridge in Armer, perhaps a hundred men, women and children were killed, in a jurisdiction theoretically under Sir Phelim O'Neill's control, though there is no evidence that he was directly involved. Convoys of refugees, either fleeing the rebellion out of fear, or having already been expelled by the rebels, were set upon by armed bands. Some were massacred out of hand. Others were robbed of all they possessed, whatever meagre supplies they carried, and in many cases the very clothes off their backs. Thousands of civilians, exposed to the harsh winter elements, would die on the road to Dublin. When Owen O'Neill arrives and takes command of the Irish forces, he will be horrified by how his soldiers treated civilians and captives. As we'll see, he brings some professionalism back with him from the continent. We'll cover this in a future episode and see how the commanders on each side attempted to rein in their soldiers' worst excesses, not least to limit the chance for retaliation. Many more civilians died due to the rebellion, though not directly at the rebels' hands. Those towns and fortresses which had not been successfully stormed, and instead were besieged, were fated to face starvation and disease, which didn't discriminate between soldier and civilian. At King John's Castle, Limerick, 800 settlers had fled from the rebels into the walls for safety, but over just a few months in spring 1642, a quarter of this civilian population would die of dysentery. The attempt to isolate the Scots from the violence in order to split these settler communities also failed, as we heard earlier. Discipline broke down, and Scots were increasingly targeted for violence by the end of November. Mihulu Shukru suggests that the total death toll among Protestants in this period was up to 5,000, a figure that was duly matched by the retaliatory violence enacted by the surviving government in Dublin. Because while the relief force to Drogheda had failed, that was not the only attempt Dublin Castle made to fight back. Government soldiers conducted their own massacres of Catholic civilians and prisoners, with the Earl of Castlehaven writing after the Restoration that the government used the rising to justify sending, quote, parties into the enemy's quarters, to spare neither man, woman, nor child, end quote. Another contemporary historian, Edmund Borlase, not to be confused with Lord Justice Borlase, would condemn the Catholics for sparking the violence, but even he acknowledged that the Protestant retaliation exceeded the Catholics, quote, as well as in brutishness as numerousness, end quote. Of course, to Borlase, this was justified by the outrages conducted by the rebels, but it's still an admission to keep in mind. Despite the Lord's Justices retracting their initial accusation that all Catholics in Ireland were to blame for the rebellion after old English Catholics complained that they were loyal, in the first two months of the rebellion, government officers conducted indiscriminate reprisals against Catholics, particularly within the Pale and County Leinster. A community of Catholics living near Dublin were slaughtered while they slept, by Sir Charles Coote. Others were hanged under the terms of martial law. The Lord President of Munster, Sir William St. Leger, went on campaign throughout the province and executed upwards of 200 people, including landed gentry, 
paying no mind whether they supported the rebellion or not. Prisoners were summarily executed, while surviving Catholics were themselves driven out of their homes into the deadly winter and their property seized. An incredible resource for studying these events are the so-called 1641 depositions. 8,000 witness testimonies, mostly from Protestants but also some Catholics, from men and women from across the social spectrum. In December 1641, a commission for the despoiled subject was established to interview many of the refugees fleeing to the Pale. The entire collection has now been digitised and is available to read online for free. It was a vast undertaking of several academics, including, among others, Professor Jane Olmeyer and Professor Mihail Oshukru, both of whom we've referred to multiple times throughout Pax Britannica. If you're interested in reading the depositions, simply search for the 1641 depositions, go to 1641.tcd.ie, or follow the link in the description of this episode. If you do read them, it's important to keep in mind the motivations and experiences of those involved. Many will have been traumatised, grieving, outraged, desiring compensation, or all of that and more. It's important to keep this in mind, and to judge accordingly. As lurid as the depositions are, they pale in comparison to the reports which filtered back to England and Scotland. Because to quote Kishlansky, what really happened in Ireland was of less significance than what people in Scotland and England believed had happened. The violence of the winter of 1641-2 was immediately seized upon as a clear example of the untrustworthiness and barbarism of Catholics. Next time, we'll see how the Irish Rebellion added yet more strain to the political situation in England and Scotland. The dispute between Charles and his English Parliament, which had almost died down over the last few months, would suddenly rear up again as the question was asked, who had the right to wield military authority, the King or Parliament. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a friend or on social media. That's the best way to help it grow and keep it going. Thanks to everyone who came to Intelligent Speech a couple of weeks ago. It was a lot of fun. There were some really interesting talks, and hopefully mine was one of them. I met some wonderful people, including quite a few listeners. If you didn't manage to make it, not to worry. Pax Britannica will reach Charles II's escape from Worcester in due course. We're not actually that far away from it now. Unlike my last paper at Intelligent Speech, which was on the Second World War, which is, you know, quite a while off. Thanks, as always, to my House of Lords, which has gained some new additions since the last episode. So, welcoming to the Upper Chamber, the Duke of Sutherland, Graham Chase, David Braswell, Duke of Bracewell, Bill, Marquess of Bristol, Bill Siren, the Earl of Lonsdale, Craig Connor, Earl of Harrowby, and David Metcalfe, Viscount Darlington. Remember, if you want to join their ranks, just go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Every member gets an ad-free feed, so not only will you never have to listen to an annoying advert from one of my podcasts again, but you can also rest well in the knowledge that you're helping me keep the lights on and keep the podcast going. Thank you to my entire House of Lords, to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, and, as always, to you for listening. <laughs>